Hi, I'm Jordan Sorokin. And I'm Nick Weiler. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neurosciences, brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Daniel Haas, a postdoc in Sam McClure's lab here at Stanford, who studies the interplay of personality and decision making. Daniel also blogs for Quilted Science at Psychology Today. Thank you for joining us today, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to a nice conversation. So, Daniel, um, you've made us this delicious cocktail. It's your favorite. Can you tell us uh, what it is and um, how it's made? Yeah, it's a whiskey sour, which is made easily. It has um, one part whiskey, two parts lemon juice, and some sweetener, sugar, agave, whatever you like. Uh, I chose this because, in general, I like whiskey-based drinks, and when I was put on the spot to choose one, it was maybe the first that came to mind. <laughs> Delicious. It's actually one of my favorites, too. So as I'm combining the whiskey and the... Oops. <laughs> so we'll my extra to that. So um, okay, cheers. 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 Mm. Very nice. So before we dig into our topics today, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, how you ended up at Stanford, a little bit of background. So my academic career actually took me through uh, two stages. One was in Germany, where I studied agricultural science, agricultural engineering, um, with a concentration on agricultural economics. Um, that was what the Germans call a, a diploma engineering degree, degree which now is uh, being turned into a master's, so it's more uh, comparable to the international context. And um, is, that, is that where you grew up as well? Well, I grew up in Germany, yes. What part of Germany? Um, where the, the very, very western state of North Westphalia in a small town called Detmold. It's close to Cologne and Bonn, which I think Bonn, the former capital, Cologne, the famous cathedral, mm -hmm. so people know those two places. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. Um, came to the U.S. originally actually as an agricultural engineer for an internship and extended that internship to do some work in web development research. And then um, when I, while I was deciding to go back to grad school, I kind of faced this decision of whether I would go back for um, a PhD degree in psychology, which I was actually really, or had become really interested in at the time, or whether I would you know, continue more seamlessly on that path. Um, for practical reasons, I ended up choosing the path of getting my PhD in applied economics um, at the University of Minnesota, which actually has a very flexible program which allowed me to take all of the coursework in the psychology department, work closely together with, with psychologists. Uh, I had an advisor in the economics department, Aldo Stichini, who is um, very much at the forefront of what is now called neuroeconomics. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually had ample opportunity at the University of Minnesota to then transition even further to psychological thinking, cognitive neuroscience type of thinking and research. And yeah, now I'm at Stanford in the Decision Neuroscience Lab with Sam McClure. Um, which is housed in psychology and does you know, precisely this um, combination of mathematical, economical modeling, psychological insight into decision-making, and technology from neuroscience. How did your interest take you from agricultural uh, engineering to where you are now? Yeah, so agricultural um, economics in particular, I think, is, um, is interesting because a lot of the things that are fundamental cases in agricultural economics are special cases in pure economics. Uh, for example, if you think of two farmers with adjacent plots or 
one is upstream a river, one is downstream a river. The activity of one person actually influences the production technology of the other. How mm. much water is available, how um, you know what soil acidity might be, those kind of mm. things. Um, so agricultural economics have to take these kind of externalities into account, which are um, you know externalities is a special case. It's uh, the, the special name the, for when my activities influence somebody else's frame of decision making. So. Um, Concentrating on that already made me interested in, well, how do you model human behavior? Because it's complicated, it's interesting, it's very context-specific, how do you do this? Um, that you know, got me to economics, which is very formal, very disciplined in how it does this. And then at some point, you get into the psychology where you want to know more of the process. You understand that a lot of this is biologically rooted. And yeah, that's, I think, what brought me here. Yeah. I've read more and more about this notion of neuroeconomics in recent years, and Sometimes it seems like, um, you know, it's about how, how, how can marketers influence, you know, use our, use our brain yeah, waves exactly. against us and that kind of thing. But I feel like there's more to it than that. What is it that, what is it that neuroscience has to offer economics more broadly? Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to give you my position on this as somebody who somehow has reluctantly accepted the label of a neuroeconomist, um, where I really view it in its um, theoretical history and how economics has developed. At the same time, I understand that there's this branch of neuromarketing, that most people think of neuromarketing precisely the way that you just explained it. Um, and, I, and I think those two, two strands, like they both exist under this heading. They're probably separate, separate ideas. Uh, so the way that I think of neuroeconomics is really um, this idea that economics traditionally is trying to describe human behavior and um, tries to describe it in a formal mathematical way. Um, originally, the framework adopted was highly was a predictive framework. So uh, economists were not really interested in describing what happens in the mind of the individual, only how does a certain context lead to a certain decision. Um, I think with a long enough history in this kind of thinking, you automatically run into situations where there are competing models mm -hmm. of how humans behave. And to really resolve these kind of conflicts between theoretical approaches, you might actually have to open this black box. And I think a lot of what happened there was um, what was originally called behavioral economics, which was you know, the combination of psychological ideas to the economic framework, often um, social psychology ideas into economic thinking and econ economic formulation. Um, with, with the neuroeconomics approach, we're now saying, well, once we combine psychological theories and economic theories, we can actually use um, neuroscience or essentially biology as a arbitration mechanism between different theories. We have more you know, ways of measuring, of precise measurements, and we have um, where we just have a different level of, of information that we can add to our thinking and investigation. Can you think of an example of, of where, where the neuroscience has actually helped economics or, or psychology, I guess, the sort of psychological side, understand which of these models actually make sense according to how we think yeah. the brain works? Okay, so my short answer would be um, it's probably more example, <laughs> um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna qualify this because um, so the other day here at Stanford University actually we had a guest lecturer I forget the name but um, he was a philosophy professor and he was kind of making the provocative claim that um, neuroscience in general has not provided any insights into how the mind works. Um, quite a claim. That, that, yeah, it was a, it was a claim that um, you know I, I think he based on very logical arguments. Um, but at the same time, I think um, you have to acknowledge that where essentially human beings have been thinking about the mind forever, science has been involved in thinking about the mind and trying to understand the mind. Whatever 
uncertainties remain uh, sufficiently sophisticated that you would have to have very, very clean, very beautiful neuroscience experiments to you know, tease these things apart. Neuroscience itself has the potential, I believe. It's just also very young kind of, young we have investigated, right? Mm -hmm. We're developing new methods in neuroscience at a pace that is you know, absolutely marvelous. A lot of that happens here at Stanford University. And I think, um, so the idea is probably that oh, we are now developing the language mm -hmm. that allows us to actually use neuroscience findings in the context of psychology and economics and decision making. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, the technology is advancing and maybe at some point we'll actually get insights that are highly specific to this approach. So basically, we neuroscience has really solved a lot of the simple stuff and it's really the, the really challenging um, and... Would you say I, I, simple or...? Well, I, I want to say neuroscience definitely has um, confirmed a lot of things that, were, that are um, fundamental. Well, mm -hmm. Maybe not simple, fundamental and interesting. So one of the things in decision neuroscience is um, when you're deciding, if you're making a decision between two options, um, you know, an apple and an orange, those are literally two different entities with two different you know, qualities and well, you're proverbially comparing apples and oranges, right? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, there's, the economic thinking is that there's a universal value function. Uh, this idea that you assign a value to different items and this value is um, comparable across you know, apples and oranges and apples and cars. So there's one single value signal and representation. Um, neuroscience seems to confirm that. It seems to say that if we're integrating a lot of information, we still at the end of the day produ produce a, a unified value signal and compare that. Now I think there are probably some... Which in the brain would be dopamine? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not saying that in terms of one specific molecule. I'm saying, that, um, I'm saying that different brain signals are evaluated in an integrated manner. And as far as different brain areas respond belonging to different uh, neurotransmitters and molecules, um, several of these can be involved. But in the end, there's one sort of representation of ultimate value of, of the different decisions. In the end, you are making one decision. Yeah, and, and it has a, a unified value signal. Yeah. I believe that to, to be true, and I think um, yeah, there are probably voices that say, oh, but maybe not, it's not as clear. But I think um, we can agree at least that this way of thinking has produced a lot of insights that confirm with the data, uh, confirm to the data. Um, I don't know if this is getting a little bit too technical, but do you think those types of ideas um, <coughs> conflict with other methods of neuroscience, such as like information processing and looking at a more detailed look of Bit information, how different processes require different types of information. Which which types of ideas do you mean? <clears throat> um, I mean information theory in general. So yeah. if the idea is that there's one unified decision, one representation in the mind, then ultimately like the amount of information would be one. You have made that decision, right? I mean, I'm not an expert in this field, but I feel like I I'm just wondering in a more general sense, is there pushback from other areas of neuroscientists science or neuroscientists that you've seen hmm. at conferences or at? Um, well, definitely not pushback, but I also, I mean, my experience of science is really that, or if you, I mean, there's uh, seldom pushback from one discipline into another, one theory into another, because, you know, people are kind of self-confined. People don't views. really talk to each other. <laughs> um, that being said, uh, information theory and the models from information theory are, I mean, they're everywhere. They're in economics, they are in neuroscience, they are in psychology. Um, psychology, personality psychology has theories of personality that relate to the idea of entropy, which is fundamental, it's an right. idea uh, from information theory. So um, 
I think those languages are all being consolidated. And I think that, as a matter of fact, neuroeconomics is precisely one of these disciplines that is working towards consilience. It's this idea that I take the language, I take the theoretical approaches from different parts of science, from different parts of the scientific landscape, and I combine them. Mm -hmm. So one of the ideas in, in economics um, that, that it seems like psychology maybe has, has influenced is this... Um, this notion of, of human beings as rational actors who are computing value and making optimal decisions and so on. And from a lot of psychology research, maybe not so much neuroscience, we know that that's not really true. We've got all kinds of biases and use these simple heuristics, which sometimes work and sometimes don't. Um, would you say that's a way that integrating psychology and neuroscience into economics helps economics understand why people do what they do better? Uh, yeah, I'd start with the first little defense of economics, uh, is that no economist actually believes that people are hyper-rational the way that you know, the economic decision-maker is well, classically portrayed. And I think that that understanding goes as far back as Adam Smith, if you, you know, read Wealth of Nation, he has a part of you know, this idea of people behaving rational, and he also makes the claim that, well, if this was the actual process, then probably nobody would ever go to war. <laughs> because there's a probability of dying if dying has an infinite cost, um, then no rational agent should ever choose to, to do so. Um, so this is understood, but the idea was that, well, in a predictive framework, um, people often behave as if, in aggregate, people behave as if they were rational, mm. you know, on average or across a lot of people, right? Um, and if my goal is to not describe what's happening in the head of the individual, but to describe what the individual is doing, right. um, the model and the type of explanation that captures the average best is a good model. Hmm. And that's how economics started. And I think it was only uh, well, precisely because of the success of this model um, that economics got to a stage where to improve, you had to also now start looking at the process. That meant integrating ideas of how the individual functions as a psychological human being. And you know, that is, I think, the behavioral economics movement. Really. Mm -hmm. And so economics has really gotten more into the, um, the importance of the individual and how individual decisions work and not just, you know, the, yeah. right, the sort of macroeconomic, you know, behavior of large groups of people. Uh, well, I mean, macroeconomics and microeconomics have always been two separate disciplines in economics. Um, so two different ways of thinking, two different um, objects of inquiry. Um, what I think the psychological part has done uh, is multiple things. The first is to show that context um, can have really quirky effects on decision making. This is this whole idea of framing. It's this whole social uh, psychology idea of you know, how information is presented to the individual might actually affect how the individual engages with this information mm -hmm. and then influences decision making in a very um, well, in a biased and predictable way. And then the next step is this idea that where well, the individual itself or him or herself um, has a personality. And mm -hmm. So individuals differ along personality domains, and personality domains might be um, describable in terms of the economic models or more mathematically formal models. And I think that is what is happening right now in terms of integrating psychology. And Do you have a, a couple examples of those mathematical models of personality? Um, okay, I mean, those things are all kind of in the infancy in terms of what the actual models would look like. Um, but the idea is that um, if we look at personality, for example, the predominant model of personality claims that there are five dimensions 
along which individuals differ. Um, the big five personality questionnaire that I think a lot of people are uh, familiar with captures these uh, dimensions. And uh, two of these dimensions are extroversion and neuroticism. Mm -hmm. Now, extroversion conceptually describes how the individual engages with rewarding situations, um, social and non-social rewards. Um, neuroticism relates more closely to how the individual relates to punishing potentially harmful uh, situations. So it has a lot to do with negative effect. Mm. So um, how people respond to good news versus bad news are sort of actually separate on these two dimensions. Oh, so they're not, okay. Yeah, so exactly. So um, I think you get at this point where there's one way of thinking about this where you say this is just one dimension from really bad to really good, or you could say, no, these are two separate domains. Now there's a highly influential theory in economics, which um, is act was actually produced by two psychologists that says that, oh, um, well, the utility function of the individual on the domain of positive events differs from the utility function um, on no negative events. That really means that there are potentially two different processes mm -hmm. in, in play when you're evaluating potential positive outcomes and potential negative outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, this is an interesting situation because what is positive and what is negative is obviously context-specific, right? In a situation where um, the outcomes could be losing $10, losing $50, and losing $100, losing 10 suddenly becomes a positive outcome, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, this, kind of, you know, this kind of thinking is actually interesting to think about, and that's you know, part of this whole kind of West strand of literature. But in that, in that context, the, the, the whole context becomes kind of negative. Like, you're going to be losing money now. So everyone's unhappy, but who is the least unhappy? Uh, uh, well, I mean, I, th I think there might be individual differences in that, and that might actually ha relate to neuroticism, although mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if I've seen data to that account. But yeah, that's an interesting hypothesis, actually. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's back up. So you said that there are these big five dimensions of personality. Yes. What are, what are the big five dimensions of personality? Okay, so the and where do you fall on each other? <laughs> <laughs> where do we fall if you've been analyzing us this whole time? Uh, so, yeah, that's I'm not a, a psychoanalyst, he's a psychologist. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. See, it's interesting when you have my background as being part economist and part psychologist. So first thing is people assume you're really good at handling money, which um, <laughs> you know, my bank account probably says is not true. Um, and but you can convince other people that you're going to be good with their money, right. so that's really... That's, that's the maybe key, yeah. it. And then there's this idea that you're constantly analyzing right. each and every individual. Uh, yeah, okay. Which probably underestimates how self-involved I am. So. <laughs> okay, <But> so we'll <laughs> stick with your personality. Anyway, so personality, um, I think a really nice way to think about this is um, to, first of all, think about you know, types versus dimensions. Hmm. And I think, actually, as a matter of fact, and we had, or you brought this up in conversation, we had uh, a different uh, point in time where, you know, it's easy for me to think of a person as being tall or short, or mm -hmm. heavy set or light set. Um, at the same time, I understand that, you know, the cutoff point is very arbitrary. Um, you know, somebody who's considered tall in Ethiopia is probably not considered tall in Denmark or mm -hmm. in, definitely not in, in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in, for personality, we have the same kind of thinking that they're different dimensions that play a role in evaluating the person. So if I want to evaluate the body type, I might look at height and, and weight. Mm -hmm. If I look at personality, I would look at how extroverted are you, how neurotic are you, how conscientious are you, how open are you to new experiences, how agreeable are you. Mm -hmm. and those five dimensions make up what, I, what is called the big five. Okay. Um, each of these dimensions is a continuum. They are conceptually unrelated, but kind of in the same way that you would see that you know, height and, and weight, weight are, are correlated at least, right. right? 
um, some of these personality traits are also correlated, mm. which shouldn't hinder us from thinking about them as, yet as nonetheless conceptually separate entities. Yeah. Um, so these these five domains are typically used. They are very very useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you said that you said that extroversion is related to our response to positive events, and uh, neuroticism is related to our response to negative events. Yes. Um, what are can we talk just for for a second about the other three, just to sort of try yeah. to understand um, they're probably these more dimensions. You know, self-descriptive than extroversion and neurot- neuroticism, but um, one of them is agreeableness, which is really a very social concept. You know, how where do I along with others? How empathetic am I actually? So I think that uh, I know that agreeableness and empathy, for example, are correlated. Um, conscientiousness is this idea of sticking to rules and procedures, mm. and rules and procedures can be self-imposed. Okay, so it's not just like you're very uh, high orbital. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that you, well, anyway, so you can have that, and um, you have openness, uh. openness to experience. Hmm. So that's the, um, the remaining one. Uh, openness to experience is also exactly what it describes, right? How willing and how happy are you to seek new experiences? Part of that um, is, I think, just novel environments. Part of that is actual intellectual engagement, so it's understanding. Um, I think we see over the lifetime, for example, that there's a trade-off between how much we value novel experiences to depth of emergence mm-hmm. and understanding. And I imagine some of these traits are um, more context-dependent than others. So, for example, I can think off the top of my head that agreeableness, given a certain group of people that you're in, might be rated higher compared to another group of people that you are And the more of these whiskey with. sours we have, the more agreeable we <laughs> exactly. are. Exactly, right, yeah. Um, yeah, supposedly there are different types of genetic types of people uh, in terms of how they respond to alcohol and whether they become <laughs> aggressive drunks or not. But <laughs> I don't think we're drinking as much. But um, context specificity of, of um, personality traits is interesting because um, the idea of a personality trait is it's a state dependent or state independent disposition. Mm-hmm. That's actually that's what I'm, what I'm trying state to say. In, sorry, state independent. So, um, well, depending on how you phrase it, right? So how a disposition manifests itself is state-dependent, mm-hmm. right? In a different context, your disposition leads to different behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we kind of assume that your disposition itself is not varying across. Yeah? So what we observe in behavior varies based on disposition that is in and of itself stable. Okay. Um, how stable is the question? Well, stable enough to have very, um, very desirable statistical properties in terms of researcher, um, research reliability. Um, but also in terms of actual manifestation in the world. So I think there's a lot of change in personality in young ages up to maybe your 30s. Mm-hmm. And after that, I think we observe less change. It's mm-hmm. not saying that personality doesn't change at all, but it they doesn't manifest. Seem, yeah, well, and the change is, pro- is not measured, well, it doesn't, isn't really reflected in a lot of our measurements. Mm-hmm. Um, I think William James said something to the extent of. Um, Characters set after 30 years, and whether 30 years is the cutoff. Um, the idea is that I think that personality is kind of self reinforcing. Um, you can think of openness to experience, right? Where uh, as a young person, you're really, maybe probably you're really open to new experiences, you seek new experiences. That often tends to make you more open, right? You become mm-hmm. somebody who travels the world. Uh, so, you know, when this is self reinforcing, as you do this from you know, your teenage years until your mid adulthood, then those things are really highly developed, very solid. Um, you could probably change them, but it's like you know, changing character. It mm-hmm. takes a lot of effort 
um, that's probably why we don't see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. You have to systematically go about it. Yeah, and it seems like probably some of it is is genetic. You may be predisposed to seek new experiences and so on. But then, given certain experiences, particularly early on, that may you know shift you in one direction or another. And I kind of like this notion of because we're talking about dimensions that you know this is not a personality type. You're not an extroverted person. Mm-hmm. You are somewhere along the you know a, a dynamic range of extroversion. Um, and you have your own dynamic range. And you have your own dynamic range, which changes, you know. And so, you know, if, if some experience changes you, it may just be recentering you somewhere along the, you know, the axis. Yeah. There you go. And, Seems uh, like a really nice, it's a really nice model. I mean, I usually have thought of personality in terms of types. You know, people have tried the, the Myers-Briggs personality yeah, type and, you yeah. know, all this stuff. Yeah, how heavily are those tests used, in, whether in your lab or in, in other research? Yeah, um, I'm assuming that the Myers-Briggs test will never be used in the personality literature that I read, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, precisely because there is this general understanding that we are working with dimensions. And um, so there's a big five personality questionnaire that is consistently used, but there are a bunch of other ones out there. So why is that the case? If everybody agrees that at the end of the day we have these five dimensions, why do people uh, keep developing these different tests? Um, Cynical, cynical psychologists say that you know, psychologists would rather share a toothbrush than some, uh, use somebody else's toothbrush than somebody else's theory or somebody else's uh, questionnaire. But I think that's not the case. I think the case is really one of um, being practical about it because um, a lot of the behaviors we're interested in are not clearly identified with one of these five personality dimensions. Right? So if you're working in addiction, it's not that one of these dimensions predicts addiction. However, there are certain combinations mm-hmm. that do so. Um, if I'm working with addiction now, I want a test that measures in a way that has the optimal combination of these traits, right? So that's where all these other tests come into play. Um, but I think they also all have their common that they think of dimensions. Mm-hmm. And statistically, they can typically be what is called rotated back into a five-factor structure. So it's sort of you sort of have this very big, broad um, cloud of personalities, everyone being a unique snowflake and so on. But you can... You know, best describe how different people are by putting them on these these five dimensions of personality. But if you want to measure something different than maybe a different set of dimensions, it doesn't mean that people are distributed differently. You're just measuring something different about them. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, I don't know how well you can actually have a graphical illustration of something by a, a radio podcast, but you know, do you your can, best. <laughs> you, can, you can really think of a you know, three dimensional space that has a very very clear axes and a coordinate system along which you measure, you might be interested in something that runs diagonally through this three-dimensional space, in which case you would make the diagonal line your measurement and relate Mm -hmm. everything to that diagonal line. The diagonal line is a different test, a different rotation of the three-dimensional space or or personality five dimensions. So, I mean, you work in an fMRI lab. Um, You're studying the, the sort of neural correlates or neural underpinnings of, of some of these ideas. What do we know about the neurology underlying these, these dimensions of personality? Are these things that you can, that you can really see in the brain? Uh, um, I'm going to say yes because that's what I'm working on. There's a meaning to your research. So, and, I, and I don't think anybody would say no. It's the, it's the question is interpreting what we see. Right. Okay, so we definitely see correlations with brain activity and personality. Uh, how is this to be interpreted? So um, 
one of the things that also relates to personality or belongs to personality is intelligence. Okay, intelligence is um, not part of the big five structure in and of itself, but it's also an individual difference marker. So it falls under the heading of personality. Um, so we do believe, for example, that intelligence um, affects how rewards and punishments are processed in the brain. So my most recent work shows results to exactly that effect, that um, depending on how people score on IQ tests, which are proxies of a statistical or proxies of statistical properties of intelligence, um, we see that how people do on IQ tests actually um, relates to brain signals in the caudate, which is um, a subcaudate structure of the brain, mm -hmm. uh, when people view positive outcomes compared to when they view negative outcomes. In particular, um, the way this information, the information of a negative and positive outcome seems to be combined in the brain seems to depend on intelligence, which then leads to something measurable, right? Mm. Um, and is intelligence, you think, um, correlated or confounded by maturity? Or do you like age <laughs> match? And um, well, an IQ test in and of itself um, is kind of, kind of age dependent, mm -hmm. right? And um, at the same time, we statistically controlled for age, but um, I think when you talk about intelligence, I mean, that, that would fill several yeah, hour radio shows for us, you know, what right. does intelligence mean, how, uh, how do we measure it, how does our measurement relate to the actual concept. Um, I think lay people underestimate the actual value of IQ tests in terms of um, IQ tests having very solid statistical properties that are well understood, that um, therefore can be applied to purposes where these statistical properties are useful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what scientists right. so actually So it measures do. something consistently. So consistently. It's the interpretation that's maybe and, and something useful. Now, I think the intuitive response to an IQ test, um, somebody who's ever taken one of those, uh, thinks that, you know, the questions I'm answering here do not match my concept of what intelligence means. Right? Mm -hmm. um, that shouldn't mean that it's not measuring intelligence, because intelligence, as conceptualized by psychometricians, is essentially the underlying cognitive ability that is common to all cognitive engagements. Mm -hmm. So the optimal IQ test would sample from as many different types of cognitive mm -hmm. tasks as you can imagine, and then crystallize the one underlying commonality across your behavior in all of these tasks. So that's what an IQ test is trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, probably taking it a little bit further out field than you yeah, want to. So I can go back to personality, down. where Let's personality is this idea, um, again, something I said before, where extroversion, for example, relates to how people respond to positive outcomes also, right? Um, so that same brain region, the caudate, um, when evaluating positive outcomes, also communicates with um, prefrontal areas, or both of these areas communicate with each other, probably bidirectionally. Um, we find that extrovert, more extroverted people have um, well, less correlation between activity in these two areas during game periods, uh, more neurotic people have less coordination between these two areas during loss periods. Mm -hmm. okay? Less coordination doesn't necessarily mean that you're responding less to it, right? Because it could be that coordination means that they're inhibiting each other less. Less com coordination could mean, mean, mean that, right? Um, so that's where this interpretation comes into play. We definitely see that there are signals, mathematical signals of how these two brain areas relate to each other, and these mathematical signals correlate with personality traits. What does it mean for personality theory? What does it mean for mean for brain science? The jury is definitely still out on that. And this is actually this is data from a paper that I'm uh, just about to submit, so it's not even under peer review. Mm. <laughs> okay.
But it seems like you know what what you might expect from that is that there may be differences in connectivity that that could be part of the explanation for individual differences in in personality. Uh, yes, absolutely. And um, so this work is actually not work that I'm doing by myself. I'm doing it with the people at the University of Minnesota, Colin DeYoung, who has uh, uh, have been had some very influential work in how we think of personality and particularly um, particular. Um, personality neuroscience, so mm -hmm. this idea that we can think about personality by looking at the brain. And um, so you know, this, kind of, this kind of result is also part of you know, this strand of thinking. So I think it's uh, conceptually very plausible. Mm -hmm. And how, just to sort of bring this back to the, to the sort of neuroeconomics area, how, how does the study of personality um, influence this sort of attempt to understand how people, how people make decisions and, and interact with one another. I mean, what's the, what's the, what's the goal of of, um, of the research into how the brain is, is interacting um, with different personality types mm -hmm. or so, personality dimensions. So economics actually has traditionally um, two concepts that are similar to personality. Uh, one is how people behave to temporarily delayed rewards, so how patient people are. And the other is how risk-seeking people are. So mm -hmm. how, how do you engage with probabilities? And um, these two things are these two dimensions are typically parameterized in economic models. So the economic person has two personality traits, two dimensional personality models. Um, risk, patience. Risk and That's patience. About it. Okay. That's about it. Um, risk and patience are not unfamiliar to psychologists, obviously, right? And risk and patience map differently onto again these five domains, for example. Um, so I think one of the thought processes in introducing personality theory to economic thinking is to say that, oh, maybe these five domains are a better representation if we can somehow parameterize them in our models, you know, this will improve our models. Um, this is particularly uh, important for people who work in, in the policy area. Even, right? So there's a whole strand of um, policy an analysis in economics where people say that, oh, personality is such a good predictor of lifetime outcomes that understanding how personality is influencing the decisions that lead to lead to your lifetime outcomes mm -hmm. um, is going to be very valuable. Um, Reminds me of the the marshmallow test. That's exactly it. Right? Which is do you mind yeah. do you mind describing you know the marshmallow test? Yeah, well the marshmallow test is very famous. Uh, anybody who hasn't heard of it yet should look up videos just for the cuteness value of it. <laughs> um, but it's researched by Walter Michel um, that essentially um, works in the following way: you invite a child as a participant. And uh, the experimenter explains to the child that here's a marshmallow, you can have it now. Right. Um, but I'm also going to leave the room for a couple of minutes. It's not specified how long a couple of minutes is. You know, I leave the room for a while. And if you haven't eaten the marshmallow by the time I come back, you can have two marshmallows. Okay. So it's a trade-off. Um, do I want the instant gratification of this marshmallow? Or do I, um, am I capable of waiting to have the larger rewards? Um, so just by measuring the time, of how long children are able to resist the temptation of eating the marshmallow, um, you have a measurement that apparently correlates very strongly with a lot of lifetime achievement variables mm. for these same children. So these kids are tracked over their life history. Um, so one way of, you know, naive way of interpreting this would probably say that, oh, there's some sort of thing as patience or self-control. It's intrinsic. Uh, once I measure that, because self-control plays such a big role in all other kinds of aspects of life, um, you have a measurement of these lifetime outcomes. 
Um, another way is to look at the videos even and see that you know the kids that manage to wait for a long time, um, they implement strategies. They start you know, distracting themselves. They sing. They paint. They turn away. Um, so these strategies are obviously things that people could learn and acquire. Um, they're behavioral or cognitive strategies. Um, um, so there's also this idea that oh, by understanding how, let's say, self-control influences decision-making, we can understand how these strategies are implemented and probably come up with interventions, strategy mm -hmm. interventions to mm -hmm. improve yeah, the strategies that we're interested in, right? My favorite strategy, I think I remember one kid would like hollow out the inside of the marshmallow. So it like, you know, <laughs> that kid, I, they may have failed the test, but I think that kid is going far in life. Oh, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I, I hadn't heard of that. That's funny. My favorite is the kid that uh, really is trying so hard that he smells the marshmallow and he, you know, he takes a little lick. And obviously you see that he's just getting closer and closer to giving in and he finally gives in. <laughs> yeah, you can't smell the marshmallow once you smell the marshmallow, you're done. So... I wonder how, so um, I want to get to sort of your, your interest in um, science writing and communicating about science. When did you, um, so you have been a contributor at the uh, Quilted Science blog at Psychology Today. Um, how did that come about? How did you become a, a writer there? Uh, so I actually really, really enjoy writing. And at the same time, I, I view higher education research as um, one of the same thing, you have to communicate broadly, not just um, with your direct peers, and I think that's important, just, not just you know, for, from a social perspective, but also for your own understanding. Mm -hmm. And um, with the writing, I, I actually originally started my own blog, which um, was just like one of these summer projects that came in handy, and it was when I was trans transitioning um, in my own research topic, so I was, um, I had to read a lot of social psychology, I had to read a lot of personality psychology. As I was reading this new literature, I would you know, write up every individual study, have a little summary in a way that you know, a lay person could understand, and I published that on my blog. Um, I was then approached by Psychology Day, and they asked me, you know, why don't you do this under our heading, which sure, I did. Mm -hmm. and, um, so they discovered your blog? Yeah, I, I think they have a good network of just you know, well. their, their blog aggregators, those kind of things. If you publish there, you, you might get seen. Um, <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> um, then. Um, yeah, so then I started writing at Psychology Today, and uh, kind of under the same model, maybe with a m with more of a, a mind to what would other people find interesting. Um, I find myself writing less and less as my personal research leaves me less and less time to write about things that are, I, I would say, easily summarized and not you know, by nature interesting only to a very specific group of researchers. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I still try to do it, and I think it's part of research work. Um, one of the articles you wrote about was identity changing during adolescence. Can you tell us a little bit about about this, what you think about sort of identity and personality and how this changes mm -hmm. in our lifetime? Um, yeah, I think it's worthwhile to maybe differentiate between identity and personality very clearly. Um, at the same time, I always try to say that right, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, personality, we think of traits, we think of somewhat deterministic, and probably not um, chosen by the individual. Right? And I'm using those, those terms knowing that anything that is genetic also has a very clear environmental component. Right? Um, there's an interplay, obviously, between the genetic and the environmental um, behavior manifestation. Um, identity is much more of a self-adopted self concept, right? Identity has a lot to do with narrative. 
Um, so I think that identity by definition is much more dependent on exposure to identity types and potential identities you might adopt in your environment, right? Mm. Why personality is much more intrinsic. So you find yeah, that it social... Can your, it can be your job or it can be that, you know, you play on, you're a part of a team. Or yeah, right now, I think during the World Cup, identities have a strong <laughs> national component right. with many people, right? Um, that might not be the case during you know, times when there's not a World Cup. Right. So it's also, again, maybe an indication that, that identity is probably much more context-specific and in flux. Um, social psychology tends to think more about identity. Personality psychology tends, tends to think more about personality, um, which I do too, precisely because, um, not because I think identity isn't worthwhile. As a matter of fact, when I started out in grad school, my big idea was you know, economics of identity and how you know, that kind of thing could be developed. Um, the problem with this is that identity is hard to measure. Mm. Right? Um, you could, you know, in your head as an exercise, think of what would you even accept as a valuable measure of your identity, much less a description, because describing your identity is hard. You know, measuring it reliably across people, across time, is, is even harder. Um, personality obviously has these nice psychometric tests and then becomes much more conducive to analytical research. Why, why don't you think that um, the danger of misuse of neuromarketing, or uh, sorry, of, of neuroeconomics is um, really serious? It has a lot to do with where neuroeconomics is at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, a lot, the neuroeconomics idea, as, as we've already talked about, is you know, kind of having a, a more precise understanding of what is happening in the mind. If I'm a marketer, what I'm really interested in is, again, this purely predictive capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, who's going to buy what and when and why. Exactly. So there are several ways of going about this, right, or two main ways. One is I have a very precise model of what's happening in your brain, and then I can apply that model to a situation and predict. The other way is I can collect immense amounts of data and then predict. Um, in today's world, collecting immense amounts of data is so cheap. Mm. Um, running an fMRI scanner on an individual, especially, especially if I believe that you know, I'm interested in the individual features of this one person, is really expensive. Um, so I think that a lot of the things that people fear that neuroeconomics might be misused for um, would be more, uh, well, it would be more realistic for them to fear that big data is being used in mm -hmm. that way. Okay, so that's kind of... To complement this, do you think there's a fear, or do you have a fear that uh, neuromarketing might be incorrectly perceived as like what you're doing? So rather than the fear being applied to the consumer, the fear is now applied to you and the researchers, where people look onto you and say, those are just a bunch of neuromarketers. <laughs> um, I don't know. So my personal experience when I say neuroeconomics is that people say, oh, I have never heard of this. What is this? So, so far, no problem so far, with no. preconceived notions yeah. and... <laughs> Some sort of Get out of my brain. <laughs> yeah. It's not like uh, here in San Francisco running around with Google Glass, which carries serious uh, yeah, The uh, serious <laughs> Stewart video. <laughs> um, you seem like a scientist who really cares about the, the meaning of your work, the application of your work. What has your research into personality and decision-making sort of affected how you how you see other people or how you see yourself and how you approach your own decisions? Oh, um, well, this is a really good question, actually, because um, so there's this uh, little thing that grad students say, at least in Minnesota, that you know, research is me-search. If you look at the psychology department there, 
the kind of what people work on. <laughs> you can kind of trace back their personal inclinations to their research mm. topics. Uh, oftentimes. Oh, you study serial killers. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, so, I th I th and I, I think that is a natural part of it, right? I mean, both of you understand that you, know, you spend immense time working on something. You have to have some sort of personal connection to the top a subject matter for it to be worth your time, right? You have skills that you could use outside of academia. Yeah. Listen to or at least convince yourself that it's worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you need to yeah. be able to convince yourself. I, I, I'm good with that idea. So how are you with decision making? Uh, okay, so I definitely, right now, I, right now I'm working on patience. That is one of the big things I'm looking at. Um, I find myself to be um, often very impulsive and impatient. Um, and then obviously I have spent a lot of time thinking of strategic decision making. And I think both, both of these um, ways of thinking I definitely apply also into try to be introspective of trying to understand myself. Um, and there's no doubt about it that, you know, the, the, I want to say that a lot of what you do during your own research is build your vocabulary to think about a certain topic. Mm -hmm. And if the topic happens to be how your mind works when you find yourself in a situation where, you know, you're not quite sure what you're doing and why you're doing it, I mean, certainly, you know, I at least apply that vocabulary and other people do too. I mean, maybe this, maybe this is asking a lot, but does does I mean, do you think that understanding where you are on the spectrum of personalities is is useful to people for for understanding and maybe optimizing their own decisions or their happiness? Maybe maybe not decisions. Oh, well, happiness is a great metric. I, I like that idea. Uh, definitely, people are always interested in personalities. So this is a personal experience now that you know people ask, "What do you do?" and personality comes out. People ask what you ask, what, what type am I, or what personality profile would you set up for me? Um, so I think that this interest clearly reflects also the person's valuation, um, this idea that, oh, if I know more about myself uh, and have more scientific understanding of myself and my psychology, I can apply that. Um, how the individual applies it is probably specific to the individual, but yeah, there's definitely value in that. And I think that, um, for example, there seems to be a lot of public interest right now in extroverts and introverts. Mm. Um, especially introverts seem to um, be very interested in reading more about the psychological phenomena, what it means to be an introvert mm. in a world that places high value on extroversion. Um, and so extroverts just want to go out and yell at people about it. Yeah, so I think that there's definitely value in this, and I think that it's also kind of accepted and it's out there that people use this kind of information. So will you, will you, will you give us your, your personality profile? Can you break it down for us? Uh, uh, actually, <laughs> Short know, answer, no. It's a personal question. <laughs> yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to answer with no. No explanation. This is one of those things, right? You spend so much time uh, administering personality questionnaires to people or looking at data of personality, um, where I, I, although I don't really like yeah, I, I know where I fall relatively on the domains, but you know, I, I don't think of myself again as a type. So. The value in knowing your personality profile probably lies in, in the fact that maybe there's, there's some aspects of your personality that you would like to change. Mm -hmm. right? So let's say if you understand um, that you are very neurotic, and neurotic means that you tend to interpret the world in a very certain way, I kind of do believe that understanding this about yourself um, allows you maybe to reappraise your intuitive evaluation of a situ situation. 
And we know from other strands of psychology that cognitive reappraisal actually matters um, for how your body even responds physiologically. Mm. So in, in some sense, I think that you know, just you know, having a name for something often helps people think about things more clearly and then might actually promote mm. ad adoption of these kind of strategies. And that being self-aware can actually allow you to, to, to affect to your own responses and to grow and change. Yeah. So for my personal example, for knowing that I'm highly impulsive, um, there are multiple strategies for me to make sure my credit card is out of reach when I'm looking at flights on the internet because I might just spontaneously buy one because I want to see a new place, that kind of thing, right? Um, so yes, for some things you can actually have just you know, pure, very simple behavioral strategies that might help you. Um, of course, you can have these strategies even without knowing that there's a five-factor model, so that's kind of right. it. Right. But like you said, it's useful to have a name for something. Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, let's, let's play a game. Okay, what's the game? So our game is called Not My Field. Um, it's not related to any game that you may have heard on, on NPR. Um, but basically we're going to read you the titles of three different um, papers. And you're going to tell us which one is a real paper and um, which two we made up. Beautiful. Sounds I great. like it, yes. Okay. I mean, we'll, re we'll read you the abstract of the correct paper. Okay, there we go. Excellent. Do All you right. want to start it off? I'll start it off. Okay, are you ready? Ready. Let's go. Number one. Comparing the rate of survival of the American cockroach, Periplaneta americana, to the German cockroach, Platella germanicana, following various amounts of radiation damage. Option two. Laughing rats are optimistic. Option three, interspecies monogamous relationships, a case study of a Pacific bottlenose dolphin and a human female. Okay, um, I'll go with study number two. Study number two. Sounds very believable to me. I know <laughs> that there's research on how mice and rats respond to well, what the research is called tickling. Um, <laughs> I know there's such a thing as an optimism bias in decision making, so I'm going with that. Okay, very well reasoned. Um, I'll read you from. Um, <laughs> from the. Um, I'll read you actually from the the description of this on the NCBI ROFL blog, which is very funny. Um, not to reveal our sources, but these researchers set out to test whether lab rats can be optimistic despite despite their seemingly depressing circumstances. <laughs> to make the rats happy, they tickled them, causing them to emit rat laughter. They then tested whether these pre-trained rats would interpret an ambiguous noise as signaling a reward or punishment. The result? The tickled rats were more optimistic about the meaning of the noise, suggesting that rats, and therefore mammals in general, can make judgments that are affected by their emotional states. Maybe there's a lesson in this for grad students. <laughs> everybody, for everybody. It sounds like you should be tickling people on the fMRI machine. Yeah. <laughs> At least uh, influence in their states. It yes. would change their personality, right? I mean, they interpret positive and negative. So that's a bias in the research study, then. Oh, that's a bias. Right. Well, yeah, they don't know. Well, but if it you depends can... on how you set this up. So this is actually interesting. It has to do with research here at the lab. Where um, So Grace Tang, who is one of the graduate students in the McClure lab, uh, she's doing research on how people <laughs> respond to smells, hmm. so olfactory stimulation. And smells are interesting because you know how a smell can trigger an instant association. Um, but you, you guys, are, at least medical students know this in particular. 
Um, so she actually has a really nice machine that allows her to deliver smells to subjects in the fMRI scanner. Oh God. And then see how they choose between sooner and smaller rewards and larger later rewards. Huh. Um, or between you know, more or less risky reward options. And uh, while her research is all about how then the states induced by the smell actually deci- uh, hmm. influence your decision making. So do, does the smell of chocolate chip cookies make me more likely to want to you know, I eat could foods, also, buy foods, be impulsive? I could say something about that, but since it's Grace's research and she's right around the corner, you should invite her to Ask for a talk her about herself. Okay. okay, next it's time on Friends in Bourbon. <laughs> Not next time, but we'll have her on later. Okay. All right. Question um, number two. You've got one right so far. Well oh. done. Yeah, well done. This is a multi-round game. I didn't. Yeah, know. so there's three rounds. Got gotcha. All right. So two A. Vodka kills more more odor-causing foot bacteria than whiskey, tequila, or rum. Option B. Powdered non-dairy creamer, extremely fam- flammable. Question mark. Question mark. And option C. Energy drink use and its relationship to masculinity, jock identity, and fraternity membership among men. I go with uh, number three. Um, that sounds like a general personality and social psychology <laughs> paper. Title. Gotta get these further away. From yeah, man, you're right. Two for two. <laughs> so let me read the abstract. Just to quote from the paper In regard to energy drink consumption, Harrison, 1978, page 65's warning the male sex role may be dangerous to your health, fits the data. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question number three. You're two for two. You're already winning the game, but yeah, let's see. Good. Let's see if you can if you can bring it home. All right. Option one. Seed number on strawberries confers survival advantage as a result of herbivore consumption preferences. Implications for the origins of numerosity. Two. Carbon dioxide and ethanol release from champagne glasses under standard tasting conditions. Or three. A tale of two cave bears. Semiotic analysis of pictographic representations in Neolithic cave art. Number three. Number three, A Tale of Two Cave Bears. You said that with uh, confidence. Uh, no. no. <laughs> okay. Number one seemed implausible. Number two seemed topical. uninteresting. Topical, given <laughs> that we're drinking right now. Right. Um, well, here, let me read you from the abstract. It'll become clear very soon. A simple glass of champagne or sparkling wine may seem like the acme of frivolity to most people, but in fact it may be rather considered as a fantastic playground for any fluid physicist or physiochemist. In this chapter, results obtained concerning various steps where the CO2 molecule plays a role, from its ingestion in the liquid phase during fermentation to its progressive release in the headspace above the tasting glass, are gathered and synthesized to propose a self-consistent and global overview of how gaseous and dissolved CO2 impact champagne and sparkling wine science. Yeah. I, I, just have to say, I just have to say, what a sentence. <laughs> and this is, this is a reason that I love scientists, because that is the most, ex, that is the most yeah, they, excited about champagne bubbles right. I think that I've ever heard anyone ever be. I'm, I'm trying to wonder how research as research applies to this particular line of... Oh, yeah. That. Well, that's the standardization of the tasting conditions, I think. That took a lot of research. <laughs> Well, um, that is that is pretty much the um, the end of our. You've got three out of th- two out of three, which is very yeah, impressive. Above average, definitely above, above average. average. Um, I still think that you need to be tickling people in the fMRI machine. Give it a try. I'll give it a try. Yeah, you have to. Give that, it a try. Can you get IRB approval for that? Um, 
That's always a tough one. Mm. It depends on whether <laughs> they're able to turn off the tickling. If you're in an fMRI machine and they're banging on the outside with whatever sticks they use to make those terrible noises, um, and then you're getting tickled on the inside and you can't escape and they keep telling you stop moving, oh. Yeah, it would that. definitely uh, imply a lot of changes to your consent form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming and chatting with us. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you all for listening. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Nick Weiler, Jordan Sorokin, and Julia Turan. For more information about Brains and Bourbon and Neurite West, please visit our website, neuritewest.stanford.edu, spelled N-E-U-R-I-T-E-W-E-S-T.